As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good? But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Go behind the wheel and under the hood on everything automotive with high-speed stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Scott Benjamin, the auto editor here at HowStuffWorks.com. And my name is Ben. I hang out with Scott here on our show, High Speed Stuff. Scott, I got to tell you, um, it's almost the end of the year. I love I love doing this show with you, and I love all the different stuff we've covered, man. Um, but you know the one thing that gets me every time we have an episode where a listener writes in. Now, you see I've got a lot of notes here, but yeah. every time we have a listener suggest something, it, it usually gets me just fired up, and it's so much better than the, the ideas that I've had. And so I know we've got a lot of stuff today. We've got a lot of stuff we wanted to handle, but is there a way we could do a listener mail episode today? Of course we can do a listener mail episode. In fact, we got a really good one to do uh, today. We've got um, Denny from Williamsport, Pennsylvania, who has written in and requested that we talk about... Um, the, uh, the the war effort, I guess, the, the World War II effort that the U- United States automobile industry put forth uh, to supply tanks and planes and rifles and every other thing right. that they needed for the military. Excellent uh, during, question. During World War II. Yeah. Um, so, Denny, this one, you know, I guess this one's not dedicated to you, but it's uh, <laughs> it's your it's your show, your topic today. So, um, Denny, like he works in a um, works in an engine shop in um, Williamsport, mm-hmm. and they actually make um, reciprocating aircraft engines there. And for a time, he knows that um, that particular company went back to, I'm reading his mail here, went back to the 1800s where uh, Demerset, or Demer, Demersest, mad bicycles and sewing machines, that they made bicycles and sewing machines there. Later, they built auto engines, and they put them in, in vehicles that you probably heard of, Auburn, Checker, Cord, yeah. um, Gardner, Locomobile, Duesenbergs, the engines came from there. And um, he says he also knows that during World War II, the plant was used to build uh, truck engines for the military vehicles. So um, he's interested in this World War II effort uh, by the U.S. auto industry. So I think that's what we'll talk about. Yeah, let's Wayne World back a second. (laughs) And here we are at uh, World War II, which is already for... 
since the U.S. involvement, which I think um, we officially declared war December 8th, right, the day after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. We declared war on Japan. Everything changed because the average, uh, the average U.S. citizen increasingly saw the war effort impact their life in terms of uh, jobs, right, uh, in terms of supplies, mm-hmm. and even in terms of uh, their transportation situation or where they could go or what they could do. Uh, so this, is, you know, we see a lot of films these days or we hear a lot in documentaries about the way this changed the average person's life, but we rarely explore the way this changed the average company, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think this is, that's why I think this is such a great, a great topic. Scott, you're the expert. Where do you want to start on well, this? Well, I guess we had better start by saying that there were a lot more it was a lot more than just the auto industry that was involved in this, of course. Right. But um, the auto industry played a, a key role in manufacturing vehicles for the military. And not just vehicles, but they also did um, you know, rifles and, and shells and engines and armor and uh, ball bearings and all kinds of things. Even so just fabrication. Propellers, um, just yeah. a little bit of everything. Yeah, they, they, they created something from nothing because they were producing vehicles up until that point. They switched over to the war effort, and it was sometimes, you know, within a matter of months that they're producing something completely different than what they had ever produced before. I mean, they're making bombers instead of trucks, or they're making uh, tanks instead of engines, or they're, you know, something like that. Uh, creating rifles in their machine shop rather than uh, making axles for, for cars. Um, just dramatic difference in production, but um, they, they accommodated it, and uh, everything I mean, it worked out really well. You'll you'll find out later that you know these production numbers are just astounding. You know the amount of material that they provided for the war effort and um, just how useful some of these materials were. Before we get into the nuts and bolts numbers, though, mm-hmm. the first question, the most immediate question, would of course be why are why are these companies chosen? You know to to shift their production and and why and how I guess well. I want to say that it's because they had the workforce to do it and they had the facilities built and they had, um, you know, the, the idea of this linear production line that, you know, they could bring a tank from one end to the other and, and you know, raw materials come in one side, well, roughly raw materials come in one right. side and, uh, you know, a tank comes out the other side. But honestly, this was completely different for them. They did have to retool. They did have to, um, you know, they changed their workforce because the eligible males were off fighting the war. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times you were finding uh, women and elderly um, now working in factories where they hadn't before. Um, so there's this dramatic shift in the in the labor force as well. Um, but they did have, you know, a good start. They had, uh, let's say they had a truck and bus facility somewhere and they were going to build tanks there. Well, where else are you going to find a place that, that large to start building tanks? You're not going to be able to find just, you know, a I mean, what you think is a big building isn't really a big building. We're trying right. to build something like a bomber. So um, some companies did build build facilities in order to do this, um, you know, because you can't make a, you can't just assume that you've got the space to build a mm-hmm. bomber. Um, some places did, some places didn't. They, you know, depending on what they were making, what mm-hmm. what they uh, what they were not instructed to, but what they were requested to build. Yeah. Um, so some companies built buildings. Others others had facilities in place but they all did require some retooling and it makes sense economically from the government standpoint if there is already an infrastructure in place mm-hmm. and the use of that infrastructure can be acquired through i i imagine through contracts mm-hmm. is probably how this occurred yeah then it it just makes you're saving so much money by doing that provided the private contractor is competent you're saving so much more money um 
than you would be able to save if you just built out of whole cloth your own building. True. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, just one quick example here. I'm kind of skipping yeah. ahead, but because uh, we're going to go through the, the, I guess, what was considered the big three, you know, the, the U.S. big three. Yeah. Um, okay. But uh, skipping ahead here, I'll just mention the Chrysler uh, contract. In 1940, they actually started building tanks. They were going to sell them in, um, in the summer of that year. Um, so they had a contract with the defense, a Department of Defense for $54.5 million to construct and staff a tank building plant. Um, so this is like just an incredible contract at the time. You're talking 1940, $54.5 million. Wow. Um, just to give you an idea of the, the difference in production, or, I mean, sorry, the difference in dollar amount of what, you know, previously had been spent on something like this. Um, the second largest tank contract had been for only $11 million. So this is five times that amount that they're giving to Chrysler. So they've got great confidence in Chrysler that, you know, they're going to be able to produce what they want, you know, as much as they want and for the price that they need to. To one so, company. Yeah, exactly. And and that oh. goes on across the board here. You'll find that, um, you know, the, the government contracts with uh, Ford, GM, and Chrysler are uh, are enormous. We wait, wait yeah. till you find out the, the dollar amounts when we get to the end of these. But we can go through these one, one at a time if you want. And yes. just, I'll just make it really brief. But um, like I said, we'll just skip through. I think we'll start with Ford here. Yeah, let's um, start with Ford. Apparently, and these, this is coming from HistoryNet.com, um, Ford was known as a pacifist, and he opposed our entry into World War II. Mm. So um, people found it kind of surprising that he did agree to build airplane engines for the British government. Um, he thought that you know that was a worthwhile cause. He had something that he could do. He could swing into you know war production mode, I guess. Um, but then the so the the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor is what inspired him to do this. Mm. Um, he decided that you know it's definitely worth it, and he went kind of all out on this. He built a he built a um, a plant that was to produce B twenty four bombers um, on an assembly line that was a mile long in uh, in Willow Run. Uh, Willow Run is in Michigan. It's, um, near Belleville area, that, that area. Um, there's an airport there now, as a matter of fact. Um, and the first bomber rolled off the line in 1942. So really, um, I think he's producing several hundred aircraft each month at this, at this factory. And it's a mile long, a mile long. That's to build a B-24 bomber, and they made hundreds of them each month. So um, that's unbelievable. I mean, So he went from engines straight to the, the bomber, the whole thing. Exactly. And it says, by the end of the war, Ford had built 86,865 complete aircraft. Um, wow. Plus, plus 57,851 airplane engines, thousands of engine superchargers and generators, and 4,291 military gliders. So you get an idea of the scope of this project. Yeah. And this is in about, uh, th- well, this is when, within three years, because he started production in '42. Mm-hmm. You know, because end of 41 is when the, the Pearl Harbor attack happened. Did I say end of 41? End of 41. So in 42 is when they started this production. And uh, by, you know, in those three years, those are the numbers that you're talking about. That's amazing. You know, there's no dollar amounts listed there, but um, pretty incredible. And especially when you consider, you know, we could do that a whole different episode on uh, the eccentricities of the good Mr. Ford. Yeah. But it is it is interesting that he did such an a complete one eighty. Yeah. Well he I mean he felt it was a just cause, so he did yeah. it. And they, they you know, it even says here that, you know, people that are his detractors say that, you know, he did a good thing here. You know, he did the right thing. I'm just eighty six thousand, so. man. That makes me think that they that we should have some. <laughs> that that yeah, how know, stuff works bomber. That's a that's amazing, isn't it? That's a really that's a, that's incredible. I mean to build yeah, it's eighty six thousand, almost eighty seven thousand complete aircraft. 
I'm telling you, man, we need a bomber. Well, maybe Chrysler can give us a better well, price. I already told you about the uh, tank building for Chrysler. Right? Yeah, and I'm, uh, I'm more into bombers, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. So, hey, well, actually, you know what? Um, says here, you know, I'm going from allpar.com. Okay. Um, and this has got a lot of Chrysler information, by the way. If you want to find a good Chrysler site, allpar.com. Um, it's not a plug. That's just a... They didn't pay it's us. It's good. No, no, not at all. <laughs> I, that's what I mean. I, I go to them all the time for information. Um, they actually built, um, they contracted a lot of different military vehicles, anti-aircraft guns, things like that. The Martin B-26 Bomber and B-29 Super Fortress, as well as bomb fuses, shelves, domestic items like field, uh, field kitchens and refrigerators. Hmm. So they made a lot of, uh, you know, just uh, appliances as well. Yeah. Um, but again, they made these, uh, these big bombers, these the B-26 and the B-29 Super Fortress. The Super Fortress yeah. is a crazy one. It is, yeah, I know. And it says that by the end of the war, Dodger produced 18,413 B-29 engines and approximately 500,000 military trucks. Um, so they had amassed over $3.4 billion in U.S. governmental contracts and uh, for the, to help protect the ground and air forces. So, so you're talking billion. we're getting into the billions now and, and that's back when a billion was still a large number <laughs> yeah that's right that's right back when a billion meant something right yeah yeah so i don't know i wonder what that is ex, you know extrapolated to today so oh i could get back out. with you on the calculations on that but before we do something like that let's go to gm gm okay gm had a huge hand in the war effort um no way i'm going to read all these numbers there's a, there's a long list here um but um they they actually delivered more than twelve billion dollars worth of goods uh, to the military. Hmm. So twelve billion dollars is what you're talking about just for, just for General Motors, you know Chevrolet division that that area. Yeah. Um, twelve billion dollars, and the list here is long. I mean, it's it's uh, the list of the products. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll quickly go through it. I'm not yeah, going to read run, all of them, but um, two hundred six thousand airplane engines. 198,000 diesel engines for tanks and landing craft, um, airplane propellers, gyroscopes, 38,000 tanks, tank destroyers, and armored vehicles. Wow. Um, 854,000 trucks, including the amphibious duck vehicles that you've seen, the uh, D-U-K. Yeah, yeah. Um, the kind that you can drive right into the water. Mm -hmm. um, 190,000 cannons, 1,900,000 machine guns and submachine guns, um, almost... Thirty-nine or three million nine hundred thousand electric motors, um, <laughs> three hundred and sixty million ball bearings, um, and and roller bearings, one hundred nineteen million shells, um, and cartridge cases, almost forty million cartridge cases. Wow. So overall, this is a grand total. This whole list is five hundred and forty million pieces of military equipment were were built by General Motors. Uh, for the war effort, and Five, this is five hundred forty million pieces, and that's now that's including ball bearings and shells sure, and everything sure. like that. But um, I mean, see huge numbers like you know, almost two million machine guns. See, that's the one I was going back to, and and I'm sorry to interrupt here, oh, Scott, but no. if you think about it, what's scary about that number is, um, <clears throat> I'd be interested to know. Maybe later we could look into what what type of machine gun that was, but mm -hmm. the odds are probable that there could there could still be people using those machine guns it could be yeah very well i mean a lot of people that's you know the thing is they gotta keep them in perfect running shape they oil them they mm -hmm. they uh they clean them they use them regularly so that they continue to work um well not just collectors but that stuff i mean 
I, I think GM's a, a good company. Mm-hmm. I think they build things to last, but it's scary when you think of guns that are built to last, and then so many things get <laughs> lost, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. Know. I agree. But, yeah, you're right. Good good company, and they, uh, they do some good work. Millions so. of dollars. Billions of dollars. Billions of dollars. I can't. I can't wrap my head around the enormity of this. Now, Fisher Body is another uh, company that um, – Fisher Body is a – well, it's just a – I don't know about how to describe exactly what Fisher Body does, but I'm say Fisher Body. Okay. They're a uh, coach builder from a long time ago, and they, they continue to make bodies for vehicles for uh, General Motors for a long time. I don't know if they had other interests or not. Is that why the there's different numbers for engines versus uh, trucks or tanks in some of our stats here? Could be. Yeah, it could right. be. Um, but the Fisher Body numbers are incredible as well because – Fisher Body, uh, by 1945, they had delivered 21,000 tanks, um, ten th- uh, major sub-assemblies for t- 10,000 B-25 and B-29 bombers, so the components that go into those mm-hmm. bombers, uh, 422,000 aircraft instruments, 3,400 anti-aircraft guns, 16,000 gun breech housings, you know, it just goes on and on, 550,000 shells, um, Diesel engines, submarines, experimental aircraft, just all kinds of things. So wow. um, that shows you that, you know, even these smaller, not mm. spinoffs, but smaller divisions were, were uh, providing as well. So this this war effort for World War II is in, intense. Yeah. Um, and, of course, how could I not mention the Jeep? Uh, you have to mention the Jeep, and I'll do it real quickly because um, the initial request for Jeep from the U.S. Army is only, uh, they only wanted, they didn't request just the Jeep, they wanted a vehicle. They mm-hmm. didn't know what it was yet at the, at the time. So they said, we want it to do these things. Exactly. They, it had to uh, had to be four-wheel drive, had to have a quarter-ton payload, and it had to weigh less than 1,300 pounds. And it had to be developed within 49 days. What? That was the limit. Yeah, 49 wow. days was the development time. So two companies, um, American Bantam Car and Willys Overland, um, were the only two that uh, – there were 135 companies that were invited to make these uh, mm-hmm. make these vehicles. Like that, a to do request this. for funding. Yeah, exactly. Proposal. And uh, so 47 days later, uh, Bantam and Willys provided – actually, Bantam provided a vehicle. Willys was ready, but they had a problem with um, axle parts, I think. And um, said that they, you know, they needed a little bit more time. They got an extension. And that also bought them time to watch the Bantam being tested and what, what, and what it lacked. And it, it, it prov- you know, I guess it performed well. It lacked power. So they, they knew what it needed, they needed to do to provide you know, the, the military with what they mm-hmm. needed exactly. Ford also produced a vehicle. Um, i trying to think of what that one was. The Pygmy. And the Pygmy, you know, Pygmy was also accepted. Um, didn't do too well. I mean, obviously, yeah. the Jeep hang, you know, hung in there, and they produced. Well, you, they're still producing. You Jeep. can still buy a Jeep today. Yeah, you can. They made the CJ, which is the civilian Jeep. Mm. Uh, shortly after that, that lasted a long time. The CJ, and uh, now, you know, I don't know what uh, body designation they're into. TJ, probably beyond that. Can you say um, the TJ was Canadian? I think. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I kind of confuse on that. You know, the the. Uh, acronyms that go along with that are the codes for the there body. There are a lot of acronyms, well, yeah. well, for the body codes of the, of the vehicles, yeah. But, um, of course, you know, Jeep is still around. It's yeah. still a, I think it's a trademark of Chrysler. And we also have to mention, um, to anyone typing the listener mail out now, the Hummer and the Humvee. Oh, yeah, of course. That's that's another story mm-hmm. that that is similar. But before we, we close out with this, we should briefly hit upon what happened when the war was over. Oh, okay. I um, mean, they're not... Well, are, are they still make? Uh, are the big three still making uh, military components? You know, I don't know if they're still making. I don't know if there's any division that's making components still. I know that in uh, in Detroit there are some uh, there are tank 
manufacturing facility still. Oh, right, right. But, and I know that, I've always heard this rumor that there was a, there was a truck and bus company that was across the street from where I grew up. Uh-huh. And um, I always heard that there was a certain amount of time that would take them to, to completely switch over to tank production. Um, that they kept the tooling from the tank production at the time, you know, from World War II. That's or, probably just smart I, I think, business. I, you know, I honestly believe it. I honestly believe that they could have switched over production and, you know, whatever it was. It's, it's now like 48 hours. If they already have all the machines and ready in place, all they have to do is strip out the old or the new, mm-hmm. put in the old, and uh, and completely switch over to tank production. So I, I had heard that in the past. I don't know if it's true or not, but um, I don't think anybody's still making war implements uh, any auto manufacturers are still making war mm-hmm. implements. Um, but in 45, when the war had, was officially over, um, they did go back to production. And so you could find very few um, U.S. cars that were built during the war time, uh, during the war years, oh, sure, I guess. Yeah. So those, those are extremely rare. And a lot of times they had a military purpose. They were ambulance vehicles or they were, uh, you know, used trucks that were used in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much from 1942 to 1945, there was very, very little or no auto production going on so if you see a car if you're in the market for a used car and you see one from that era <laughs> look just, twice <laughs> just be cautious i mean there's yeah. some around there but you know around but you know they may be an ambulance they may be um, a panel van that had another mm. purpose or um you know i don't know a truck that had a military purpose as well so uh, you know they're available yeah so there you go denny um hope we answered or gave you a little bit more uh information rather about about the automotive companies during world war ii and you know what, Scott? I like that listener mail uh, a lot. Do you want to try to do one other one? Sure, why not? Okay, Scott, our listener mail today comes from Brian, who is currently residing in Hong Kong. And Brian is writing in uh, for our recent episode on five reasons not to buy a hybrid. And he says that while a lot of power generated in the U.S. is cold, coal pot, excuse me, coal fired, it's important to note that when you power things with these sources, you are able to centralize the pollution source. So um, if we, his argument is switching to electric vehicles, even if they are coal powered, puts all of the pollution in a a concentrated area where it's easier to manage it. Hmm. And then he also points out that he, um, let's see, where, where does he point this out? Sorry. Easier to manage, huh? Yeah. Okay, Let like maybe the uh, uh, the smokestack filters that uh, that filter out contaminants. Yeah, things like, like that. the scrubbers. Uh, okay, gotcha. and then he also adds that he would buy a hybrid for non financial reasons any day, but he doesn't have to because he lives in Hong Kong, which has great public transit. Ah, you know another point that I remember from another. Uh, it's a good point, but I, yeah. I remember another point from another listener that said that um, you know we're talking about plug-in hybrids, really, right? And uh, right. that's important to remember too. You know, the, we're talking about cars that actually take electricity from the wall. Mm-hmm. So, um, so a other non-plug-in, yeah, it would would work on. Of course, that would be a different argument. Yeah, because so. you're using gasoline, yeah. which charges a generator, which then provides power to the battery. You're never mm-hmm. plugging it into the wall and using mm-hmm. straight electricity from the uh, well, from the uh, the, the out- outlet there, the socket. Um, so different, you know, need to compare apples to apples, I guess. Is yeah, what you completely say. different uh, can of worms. Yeah. Box of cats. Sure. I don't know. I'm just <laughs> making things like, up. Yeah. So uh, I guess that's it for us today. Everybody, thanks again for listening. Uh, Scott, do you have anything you want to add here? Oh, no, that's it. All right. Well, all I can add is our email address, highspeedstuff at howstuffworks.com. Email us and we'll talk to you next time. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. 
And be sure to check out the High Speed Stuff blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.